That's, that's an all right good morning. Um, see, everyone expects that you get a good good morning because the low rumble of the bass. Um, because, you know, it's daylight savings, but as has as been pointed out by a couple families and a visiting friend, if you have young children, they are no respecter of the changing of times, and so it doesn't really matter. You have just as horrible sleep as you had for the last four years ever since bringing forth that creature into the world. So... Some of you are chippery, I'm glad for you. Some of it the young kids aren't. We'll pray for you. We are in a series on the book of James. Uh, we're in the third week and we're starting chapter two. And today, honestly, is going to be a message that's sort of, it's simultaneously like so easy, so simple. Like there's like almost even nothing you even need to do to talk about it. And so we're just going to take a look at a few verses and then go to a parable of Jesus that kind of brings what James is trying to communicate to life. Now, if you haven't been with us, we've been talking about the fact of the fact that James uh, isn't necessarily a great translation of his name. Um, it's a little misleading because James sounds, doesn't sound Jewish at all, but James is taken from a Greek word. Actually, it's taken from a Latin word that's taken from a Greek word that's taken from a Hebrew word. And in Hebrew, this guy's name would have been Yaakov. And Yaakov is the half-brother of Jesus. He's not one of the 12 disciples. So this is the half-brother of Jesus who thought Jesus was crazy growing up, and probably rightfully so. I mean, we joked around a little bit about this, but, you know, imagine if your sibling just always, always got like straight A's, always did the chores on time, always perfect. Mom absolutely loved him a little, you know, more than you. Talked about how perfect he was. You'd hear mom praying in the night. Dear Lord, thank you for this, this baby Jesus. He is the savior to come. He will save all of us from the wrath. And you're just like, oh man, so you grow up hating Jesus, thinking he's crazy. But Yaakov meets the risen Jesus and everything after that changes, and he becomes a leader in the early church, would end up dying a horrific death for Jesus. And so when we read these words, we are talking about like a sacred document written by someone who spent a life with Jesus, a leader in the early church, and someone who would ultimately die for Jesus. James chapter 2, verse 1, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Super, super straightforward. Get it? No partiality. Don't play favorites. Don't give preferential treatment. Lots of different ways in our culture that we can show partiality. The word is taken from a Greek word that literally means to, to receive someone according to their face. So receiving someone according to their face means like judging someone or receiving them by some external appearance. It could be ethnicity you know, race issues? Do we have issues there? Yeah. Socioeconomic? You ever look at, look at someone differently because they, you know, drive a beat-up car and dress differently? Or you're on the poor side and you look up at the person with the nice car and the nice clothes and you instantly write them off as some stuck-up snob? You ever done that? It's like you don't know any of their story. You don't know how they got that. You don't know where they're at. But you show partiality. You receive them according to their face. In high school, I'm, too, I'm way too old to know what's cool and, and stuff in high school now, uh, but when I was in high school, there was, you know, there's like different, gr- I don't know what the groups are now, but we had like the jocks. Jocks and like the cheerleaders are eternal. That, that stays, never changes, it's immutable. But like, like 
we had the emo kids and like the metal heads. There's the cowboys and the skaters. And back then it wasn't cool in the, in the dark times in my age. Uh, skaters weren't cool. They, they kind of dressed like homeless people. And so we, we didn't like the skaters. And you, if you call someone a skater, it was like a derogatory. You didn't know anything about them. Just go, oh, he's a skater. Probably smells, doesn't shower or something like that. Somewhere along the lines, like after Tony Hawk, the video game came out, skaters became cool. And then you had to reverse it. Then all of a sudden, if you weren't cool, you try to dress like a skater. You know? A lot of different ways you could judge somebody. You could judge people by their hair. You know, someone's bald. There's been a time, several times, and I never take offense to it. It's like, this is just human nature. There's been many times where like, people have come up to me after service or, or like after years of attending the church. And if, you, if you think I'm talking about you, I'm not, because it's happened so many times. <laughs> There's no one individual. But it's like, you know, I saw you walk on stage, and I was like, who's this bum that they got to like do announcements and then all of a sudden you started preaching and I, and I grabbed my wife's hand and I you know said don't worry babe it's okay and uh you know most of the time people are extremely apologetic they say hey I'm sorry you know it's the second you started sharing your heart I realized you weren't who I thought you were so there's all different so- sorts of ways we show partiality one of the big ways in our culture we do this is with like celebrities so here's uh here's one the beeb Bieber. Uh, you know, celebrities can commit crimes and like not have to face the same consequence that we would. But I mean, so Justin Bieber a while back, he got, he was drag, race, drag racing, got a DUI and resisted arrest. And what did the Biebs have to do? He went to an anger class and made a donation to a charity. It's like, you were drag racing, DUI, and resisting arrest. And you, you went to some classes? And you know whatever charitable donation it was, it was like one hundredth millionth of what he actually has. Two decades ago, it's kind of fallen out of talk, but it was popular in its day, an actor by the name of Matthew Broderick uh, drove into another lane and killed a mother and daughter. And when it was all said and done, he paid a $170 fine. Uh, So you just see those things. And often if you have the money to get the best legal counsel, you can get away with something where maybe the poor man couldn't. So my brothers, show no partiality, no preferential treatment. Now, what does James ground this in? He grounds it in the fact that you have a faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now, why is that important for the grounding of this command? Well, because there's Christ and there's everyone else. At the foot of the cross, there's level ground. The playing field is equal. You have one king of kings and lord of lords, and then you have a bunch of us people down here, peasants begging for crumbs, and we're all on the same playing field. So the gospel demands that you don't look at people differently because of some external manifestation, because of an appearance, because of race, ethnicity, socioeconomic standing. just obliterates those categories. My brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And then he gives an example of something that was going on in the churches, or possibly going on in the churches, unfortunately. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who hears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, 
or sit down at my feet? Have you not made the distinctions among yourself and become judges with evil thoughts? So you get the image he's giving? Two people walk into a, a church setting or maybe a, a, a table setting, and the rich guy, you say, hey, come, come sit. Sit over here in the place of honor. And the poor man, you go over there or sit at my feet like a servant. So the question for us today is, are we doing these types of things? And we're just kind of blind to it. We don't realize it. And ask yourself the hard questions, and we'll return to it in a little bit, but you need to understand your default nature is to do this. It's not like, you know, our, our culture likes to pretend that, like, everything bad about us is some learned behavior that we picked up. No, no, your default nature is to be tribal, meaning you find people who look, talk, and dress like you, and you form a tribe, and you're in the right, and those on the outside are wrong. That's, that's human nature at its core. You know, it's like with kids at a very, very early age, when they're unaware of those types of distinctions, they'll play together nice, but as soon as their brain has the cognitive development to process those differences, even little children will, will start. That's why there'll be like commercials like, you know, showing a, a white baby and, 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 a, and a black baby playing together and it's all good, which is great, but then it shows like, then their parents taught them racism. Maybe, but also just developing in their own cognitive processes that child, maybe at two doesn't do that, wait till they're five or six or seven. Now, oftentimes it's made worse by bad parenting, but your default nature is tribal. That's why in high school, the skaters are with the skaters, the emo kids are with the emo kids, the metal kids are with the metal kids, and the jocks with the jocks. That's the normal pattern. The gospel comes in and says that pattern can no longer exist. Can't judge people by external appearances and manifestations. He goes on specifically to hit this issue with socioeconomic issues. Listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? James begins by saying, didn't God choose those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? Now, th there's some things that you have to understand. It's not as if God just looks at poor people and says, oh, you were born into poverty, therefore I like you more than the person who was born in riches. That's not what's going on. There's, there's a, a clear pattern in Scripture. And it's this idea that the materially poor are often also simultaneously poor in spirit. And so being poor in spirit is a big theme in Scripture. When you are materially poor, meaning you're broke, you have no money, you know you are in need. By default, you know you need at least food, shelter, or money. So there's a position of saying, I can't accomplish everything by myself, I need help. And so oftentimes the materially poor are the first people to respond to the gospel because they understand they are spiritually poor. If you have a lot in this lifetime and you don't need to rely on anybody except your good, hard work and your own brain and, and intelligence, then oftentimes you don't think you need anything in a spiritual sense. So the materially poor are oftentimes 
spiritually poor and are able to receive the grace of God. This is why in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says, blessed are the poor, for they shall inherit the kingdom. And then in the Gospel of Luke, Luke actually says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Because it's not like those are two hard, distinct categories. In fact, there's a Hebrew term that describes it, anoim. It's the material poor who are, off, who are responsive to God. If you are middle class or rich in this country, there's not very many things that you truly need. And you can say like, oh no, I'm middle class and you don't know all my needs. Look, we all have needs, but in this country, if you're middle class, you're top 2% richest people on the face of the earth. And so if you are in those positions, you oftentimes rely on your own works or deeds or ambitions or intelligence or competency to get you through life. But the gospel says you don't, you're never going to be competent enough, you're never going to be smart enough, you're never going to produce enough good deeds to ever justify you before a perfect God. You need his grace. You need to say, God, I come to you with nothing. When you have that understanding, it should change the way you interact with the materially, materially poor here on earth. So what I'd like to do for the rest of their time is go over parable, a parable that Jesus gives that perfectly illustrates what James just taught us. Now, I'm going to read the entire parable. It's the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, and we're going to briefly look at how this is traditionally interpreted, how it's always taught, for the most part, at least, at least for quite some time. And that could be right. The traditional understanding of this parable might be the right interpretation. But I'm going to give you a different way of looking at it. Or better yet, it's not a different way of looking at it. It's a way of looking at the parable with some other details that actually make it, uh, how should we say, more cutting to the heart, more scary, more haunting, and more convicting. And no matter what kind of route you take, you still come to the same general conclusion. But what I'm going to present to you is a way of like, it's like, it's, it's twice as scary. It's twice as scary. Raise your hand if you're familiar with the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. Don't feel bad if you're not. It's very popular. So even if you didn't grow up in church, you're not a Christian, <clears throat> you've probably heard this. So I'm going to read it out loud and just listen. This is Jesus giving a story. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being tormented, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he set out, he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in the flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between you and us a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send, me, send, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into the place of torment. 
But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, then they will repent. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So the parable presents to you two people, radically different lifestyles. One rich, the rich guy, and a poor guy named Lazarus. Rich guy, in the traditional understanding of this, this story and parable, doesn't care about the poor man who sits at his front gate. Doesn't care for him. Never notices him, never feeds him, never shows him any charity. And when they die, their positions are reversed. The rich man goes into torment, and Lazarus is carried away by the angels into what they call Abraham's side. Now, brief note, a lot of people will try to get like a theology of the afterlife from this. Don't do that. Don't be tempted. This story is not about heaven or hell and what heaven or hell are like. There's details about these realities, but the, this parable is not trying to get you to think about a theology of heaven or hell. It's trying to get you to think about how you live now in this life, and then it tells the story of the other. Lazarus is taken up by the angels to Abraham's side, so like paradise. Abraham is the father of the Jewish faith. This is important. We'll see in a moment. But he's taken up to be with the faithful Abraham in a life of paradise, a complete reversal of how they lived here on earth. The rich man says, send Lazarus to come give me some water. And Abraham says, no, there's a, this, it's fixed. You, you can't cross over from torment into paradise. It doesn't work that way. And the rich man says, well, send Lazarus to go warn my five brothers. And Abraham says, no, they, they have the, the prophets and Moses. In other words, they have the Bible. Even if someone were to come back from the dead, they're not going to believe. So again, the traditional understanding is the rich man paid no attention to the poor man, and their fates were reversed in the afterlife, which is pretty convicting, right? It's like, you don't care for the poor, and you end up in torment. Pretty convicting. Well, there's, a even, there's a poss- possibly an even more convicting way to read this. And so... Uh, I'd like to walk us through, and I want everyone to pay close attention to pictures, images, and symbols. I'm currently in school still, and I'm working on a degree in theology with an emphasis in something called semiotics. And uh, semiotics is just a big fancy word to describe uh, the study of signs, symbols, and images. And so, in one sense, it could get complicated like anything in academics, but in another sense, it's just like, Pay attention to signs, symbols, images, and pictures. Simple as that, okay? It's like anything. If, you, if any of you have done advanced degrees, like even to say something simple in the academic world, you have to invent some big, big fancy word. So what I'd like for want to read this again and pay attention to what images pop out, what symbols, what signs, what's in the text. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Okay, start identifying things in your head. I'm gonna underline some things, and hopefully a lot of your list and my list will overlap. Probably purple and fine linen is the first one, like, like, boom, okay? There's also a gate. 
there's someone named Lazarus. Now, that may not stand out as an image or a picture or a symbol, but it, it, it does in a moment. I'll show you. you, you, did, you did anybody picture a dude with sores? Like, you, in your mind, you saw the person with sores. And there's a table, a big table, the rich man's table. Dogs are licking the poor man's sores. First off, purple and linen. We're told he's a rich man, but what does purple and fine linen tell us? <clears throat> he's a super rich dude. He's not just a little bit rich. You know, he's the, in, in English, we say they're filthy rich. He's like seriously rich. Now, if you're in Jerusalem, you're in Israel, and you think about somebody who's super rich, but someone who actually wears purple and fine linen. By the way, th to get purple, there's a shellfish that's really hard to find, and it excreted a little purple dye. So you had to find all these things and smash them up and get this dye just to create a purple garment. So it's very, very expensive. And it also stands out. The color stands out among all the other colors. So we're not told exactly who this rich person is, but we're told he wears purple and fine linen. And that alone would kind of narrow down possibilities of who this person can be to like two or three people. But I can tell you, if you asked a first century Jew, who is the one who wears purple and fine linen, probably more than half of them would instantly respond with the high priest. Because the high priest wears purple and fine linen. So this, this parable isn't saying this is the high priest but there's, this, I, there's an image that comes to your mind. Now, this person also in the parable later calls Abraham his father, which means he's ethnically Jewish and, and at least in some respects is religiously Jewish. He recognizes father Abraham and calls out to him. So even if it's not the high priest, the high priest at this time, by the way, was named Caiaphas, um, it's probably someone who Jesus wants you to see as wealthy and religious. Also at this time, it's important to note that the vast majority of people believe that if you are rich, you're blessed by God, and if you're poor, you're <clears throat> cursed by God. You're cursed by God. So this kind of understanding that like, there's this guy who's purple, fine linen, has a great house, clearly he's favored by God, and then this poor man must be cursed. To have a rich religious man, and he feasted sumptuously every day, and at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus. So the gate means what type of rich is he? He's really rich. He's got one of those, those big giant gates where you have a remote, and it just opens up, and then there's people there to greet you and welcome you in, and music starts playing, announcing your revival as it, uh, arrival. It's like, he's got it. At the gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus. Question, for those of you who've been going to church since you were born, in any of Jesus' stories and parables is a character named? Mm. This, is the, this is an instance where Jesus takes a character in a parable and actually gives him a name. Now, anything stand out about what he's named? Lazarus. What does Lazarus mean? It comes from Hebrew name Eleazar, but it means God has helped me. Which is interesting because in the story, it doesn't look like God's helping him at this point. Now also, is there any other Lazarus in Jesus' life? 
Jesus, like one of his best friends, is named Lazarus. So when Jesus is telling this parable, the only time he gives someone a name is this poor man, and he names him after one of his best friends, and the rich man is not named. It's interesting. Next, he's covered with sores. Now, this is where it gets interesting. He's covered with sores. If you are covered with sores in first century Israel, what does that make you? You either have leprosy or some other big, bad skin disease, and you are ritualistically and ceremonially unclean. Why in the world is there someone who's ritualistically and ceremonially unclean and should be outside of the city limits, living in a leper colony or some other, whatever it is, some distance from the life of the people? Why is he at the rich man's gate? Why is the rich man even allowing this? Legally, you could, you could throw rocks and stones at people with skin conditions to get him away, and yet he's at the rich man's gate, the place where the rich man enters, where all of the guests of the rich man enter. Why is the rich man allowing him to do that? Would you? It's one of the things about our culture. Everyone likes to out-virtue signal each other. It's like, I would do this, I would do this, I would do this. Are you letting the unclean have a place to lay their head on your front lawn? This guy is. And I'm telling you, it's different than modern day because he's, by religious standards, he should be outside of the community. But yet he's right there at the rich man's gate. Now, another interesting thing. It says he longs for the food that falls from the rich man's table. It's an idiom. What does it mean? Well, the, the way people ate in this time is they didn't have like utensils and stuff, so you'd eat with your hands, and then what there, there would be is these massive pieces of bread all around the table, and they functioned as your napkins. And so there's these big pieces of bread that you would soak up like the juice and the grease and the fat to get off your hands. And then what would you do with all those kind of bread, all those pieces of bread that are filled up with the grease and gravy? Well, that's the stuff that would fall from your table, and you'd throw it out, usually for the scavengers or the dogs to eat. But the rich man is allowing the unclean man to sit at his gate, and possibly the reason why the dogs are there where the, rich, where the poor man is is because they're both eating the leftovers from the man's table. Now, you may be thinking, man, this, this is still messed up. This, this rich man is still just a jerk, not providing for... No, no, no. In the first century world, in the religious world, nobody was letting the unclean lepers stay at their gate and giving them pieces of bread from their table. No one. Nobody. Poor people are cursed. It's called retribution theology, and it was the way the, the universal thought of the collective culture went about their day. Poor people, this man is cursed. He should be outside the city. Good riddance. The later Jewish rabbis would say that there's three reasons why you should never be born. One, it's kind of it's sad and funny. One is if your, your wife rules over you. It's like, out of the three things you're going to say, if your wife rules over you, better that you were never born. That was one. <laughs> Two, that you would have to beg for food. Because that means you're cursed. 
and three is if your body was covered with sores. So this guy's got two of the three reasons. Better if he was never born. And that's what the thought would have been about him. Everyone else would have threw rocks and told him to go away, but the rich man lets us sit at his gate, being unclean, and maybe giving him the scraps from the table. In other words, the rich man is doing more for this man than any other listener that would have been hearing Jesus' parable. Possibly. Don't know, it's a possibility. So it'd be like if Jesus told this parable today, he tells a story of, of a rich man who isn't necessarily changing this man's life, but is doing more for the poor than you. You know, while you post online about how it's so important to care for the poor. He's doing more. It'd be like, dude, this guy gives like 20% of his income. He gives 10% to his church, 10% to local charities. He sponsors not one, three kids in other countries. So he does more than you. The rich man most likely is doing more, the rich and religious man is most likely doing more for the beggar than you would. Now, why does that make this like way more scandalous, way more scary, way more haunting? Where does that man end up? He ends up in torment still. So before, you're going like, oh yeah, he deserved to end up there. And now you got a guy who's probably a little bit better than you on the moral scale, and he still ends up in torment. So the reaction of the people would be like, well then who can enter heaven? And if you think that's a stretch for Jesus to tell parables like that, that's actually the only way Jesus tells, tells parables. All of Jesus' stories and parables cause a crisis in you. And Jesus talks about how hard it's for the rich to get to heaven. And what do the disciples say? Who then can enter heaven? Or sometimes Jesus say, man, if you're sinning, better to chop off your hand than to go on in that sin. Your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Better for, for you to enter heaven with one eye than go to hell. So Jesus and his stories and his parables, they like hit you hard. They cause a crisis. That's what they're designed to do. They're supposed to do that. So the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off at La and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in the flame. So even in sort of the, the afterlife, there's still this, this sort of like, send Lazarus to help me. Now, we can't be certain. Again, Jesus' parables don't spell out every detail, but it, the, the, the story, Jesus may be telling the story in this manner to say, even in the afterlife, the man still, the rich man takes his category of rich and poor with him. So if you're in hell being tormented, and Lazarus, the guy who you thought was cursed, is, you know, the first thing is, send Lazarus. Have him come serve me. Just give him a, Maybe. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. So it's Jesus' way of saying, 
like once you die, you don't get to come back and fix things. And you don't get to like cross over. Now again, don't take these images of heaven and hell literally because it's not, in, in hell it's not like you can look and there's Abraham and I know what he looks like even though I've never met him. And there's Lazarus by his side and, and come give me some water. The story is describing heaven and hell as ultimate realities, which they are true ultimate realities, but describing them through this story, this parable. And he said, then I beg you, Father Abraham, to send him, Lazarus, to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into the place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Okay, same text, and I've underlined some, some things. The parable lists the fact that the rich man has five brothers in his father's house. He's got five brothers in his father's house. Now, you have to be like extra history geek to start thinking about what possibly could be going on. Again, we're not certain, but it's like, why would Jesus include this detail? Why five brothers? Why not seven? Why two? Maybe it's just random. Jesus picked a number because it's not important. Remember how I said one person that would immediately come to mind would be the high priest when you think about who wears purple and fine linen? The high priest at this time is named Caiaphas. And Caiaphas is the son of a man named Annas who was the high priest before him. And in the house of Annan, there are six sons who would all eventually serve as high priest. So Caiaphas has five brothers in his father's house. They're all alive, but all of them, moving after this point, will all serve as high priest in the coming years. So maybe, maybe not, but it could be Jesus' way, and this is what Jesus loves to do, he takes a picture of someone who you think absolutely is going to heaven. The high priest who is rich, which means he's blessed, who is religious of religious, who is an ethnic Jew of the descendants of Abraham. And the twist to the story and the scandal to the story is he's in torment when he dies. And the even greater twist is that guy probably did more for the needy than you do. It's like, oh man. Now do you see why you might, after hearing this, you would say, who then can be saved? Do you guys know how did Jesus answers his disciples when they ask that question? Anyone remember what Jesus says when they say, who then can be saved? It's like, Jesus is like, you're lucky with God, all things are possible. I added the lucky. Jesus doesn't, <laughs> if you're a Christian, you don't really... Yeah, you don't use that. You use that. You don't use that word sparingly. Luck. You're, you're you're lucky. With God, all things are possible. So then, he says, "Send Moses and the prophets, and they will listen to him." He said, "No." Verse thirty. And he said, "No, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent." He said to them, "If they do not hear the prophets, Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead." 
which is like really interesting at this point because Jesus is talking about someone coming back from the dead and them not believing. So what's he referring to? Now, possibly Jesus and the resurrection. Do you remember what the poor man's name is? Lazarus. Who comes back from the dead? Lazarus. And according to the Gospel of John, after Lazarus is brought back to life, who begins the plot to kill Jesus? The priestly elite. Caiaphas, the high priest, and the other religious establishment. So, in a way, it doesn't matter how we interpret this parable because both views still come to the same conclusion. Those who you think might be in may not be, and those who you think are on the outside, they might actually be righteous before the Lord. And how you interact with those who are materially poor around you matters. You shouldn't show partiality just because someone is poor or because they're a leper or because of skin color or ethnicity. See how all of that stuff's working. So the traditional view holds up fine, but it's possible that Jesus' first listeners would have even been more scared than we are because Jesus is talking about the religious establishment who does technically more for the poor than you. So what is Jesus trying to get at? You know, what, what, what would make the religious righteous dude actually be able to get in? What, what, here's the thing. The rich man thought he had five brothers. He had six brothers. And one was at his gate. And what he didn't need was leftovers. He needed to be invited into the table. Because the table is the place of equality. You need to know that like two-thirds of the New Testament after the Gospels is written precisely to answer the question, who do we get to eat with? Like, there's the Jew-Gentile thing. Who, who, who do we eat with? Paul the Apostle actually has to rebuke Peter the Apostle because Peter wasn't eating with Gentiles, non-Jews, after the death and resurrection of Jesus. So the question is, who gets to eat at the table? Is there still partiality? Is there still barriers? Or do you understand that there's Christ and for the rest of us, there's a level playing field. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Billy Graham was the first to say that. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. And so, the rich man had another brother. And it wasn't about charity. It's not about charity. It's never about just charity. It's about how do you see that other person? How do you see them? Because some of us, and this is where the, the, the kind of scandal of the story comes, is some of us don't show any generosity to those in need, and therefore we show partiality. Some of us actually do give to charitable causes. You give to church, you give to, to other things, to nonprofits, and it's precisely because you show partiality that you give. Some of you are thinking I might have misspoke, misspoken there. I didn't. Some of us give precisely because we're showing partiality. And I fall into this camp. Because I would rather write a check 
than get to know someone's story and spend time with them and to treat them as a friend or a brother or a sister. Have you ever done that? Have you ever like started to feel bad about some issue that you know you should probably get involved in and rather than actually truly caring, you just want to clear your conscience? He's like, I'll write this check. Have you ever given a church like that? I don't really want to get behind this church. I got a bunch of sin in my life, but I'm going to give them a big check. Bible says to give cheerfully. Why? Why should we give cheerfully? Because we understand that there should be no partiality because of the cross. We're all beggars. And because of the cross, Jesus came to help the needy beggar. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. The ushers can pass out communion. Jesus was spiritually rich, King of kings and Lord of lords, and he became materially poor and suffered the most gruesome, horrific death imaginable in order that you might be made spiritually rich. And so when that happens and you truly have the gospel change your heart, how could you not be generous? How could you not be a generous person after you've received generosity like no other? How could you not care about the the things that matter? And so that's why when we're greedy or we're showing partiality, the root cause of that is not like, oh, you need to have some education on race relations. No, you need to have a quick course in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what our culture thinks it could do is that you could just legislate or educate sin away. We're going to send people to some classes that's going to fix them. It's nonsense. You can't legislate or educate the human heart out of wickedness. But when you understand the gospel and what Christ has done for you, the only thing you could say is, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus, what would you have of me? You become a generous person. You're not a partial person. You see people as who they are, made in the image of Almighty God. And things move forward from that. So as we take communion, I want to remind us of the parable. (laughs) Because in one sense, the poor man was Lazarus, and in one sense, maybe the rich man was just anybody, or maybe he was the high priest, who knows? But what we know today is that We were the poor man. We were the poor man at the gate, cursed, stricken, afflicted, and we had no hope. And God didn't give you crumbs. He invited you to his table, and he adopted you into his family, and you say, you eat here with me now, son, daughter. We're all beggars, and we're shown grace. That's why Christians should be the most generous people, the most caring people, and why we look at people and say this is an image bearer, not just some random person. Let's stand as we take communion. The bread bread represents the body of Christ broken on our behalf. It reminds us that the rich man in our story is Jesus, And it actually cost him something in order to make us spiritually rich. It is his body broken on our behalf.
and we take the cup to remind ourselves of the blood that was spilled. And the Bible says as we do this, we are to, to continue to proclaim the death and resurrection of Jesus until he returns again. And so, Lord, you broke, your body was broken on our behalf, and now we pledge allegiance to you until your return. Father, thank you for inviting us into your house, adopting us into your family as sons or daughters, and thank you that for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is now no condemnation. Out of the riches that you have showered us with, and for most, nearly every single person in this room, we have been showered with both material and spiritual riches. May we use both of those to bless this world and to advance your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.